You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. And this week, we are coming to the conclusion of our series about life in medieval times, the dinner theater company where you watch knights joust and duel for the favor of the queen, currently for the queen. That's the current show. And I'm going to tell you about who our guest is in a second. However, before I get to that, I want to tell you about some special bonus episodes that are coming out for working. If you check out the feed on Tuesday, March 26, we are going to be releasing a special five-episode mini-season about second actors. That is, it's people who make a dramatic career pivot at some point in their lives. My slate colleague, June Thomas, spoke with a lawyer turned rabbi, an airline worker turned national park ranger, a writer who became a physician, an economics professor who became a Zumba instructor, and a former Microsoft executive who launched the Gates Foundation. And she's going to talk about their challenges with making that kind of a huge career change and how their lives transformed when their jobs did. And as always, what exactly it is they do every day, because you know that is the soul of this show. And with that, what about this episode of this show? I'm going to be talking with Lee Cordner, who is the creative director for Medieval Times. He doesn't work at the Castle in New Jersey. He works for corporate. He is the guy who essentially writes the the scripts for the show and conceives of what the plot line is going to be because as you've learned listening to these episodes there is actually a bunch of plot involved in all of that dueling and jousting and there's acting involved and kind of vaguely Shakespearean language. Lee's the guy who comes up with all of that. As you're going to learn it's a really incredibly precise process to put one of these scripts together and I actually thought it was pretty fascinating to learn about just how much dedication to detail it takes. I hope you enjoy. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Lee Cordner and I'm the creative director at Medieval Times. And what is your job as the creative director? My job as a creative director is to take the company in whatever direction the company decides it wants to go. They have a vision, a dream, a goal, and uh, they want me to help them realize it in the arena. And so uh, does that mean you're conceiving of shows? Are, are you coming up with, with with plot? What exactly are you doing? Yes. Yeah. All the above. All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, the, when you're familiar with the product, I'd probably 50 to 65% of the show is already established. We know we're going to have sword fights. We know we're going to have dressage. We know we're going to have a bird flying. We know we're going to have games. But then there's, you know, 30, 40 percent of the show that's left strictly to plot what we like to do new, uh, you know, dialogue, characters, music, of course, has to be redone. And it's my job to take the old elements, carry them forward, hopefully uh, revamped and looking new, and then create and devise all the elements that are brand new to go into the production. So you've got about a third to, you said, 40% of the show. That's sort of your yeah. domain. That's your kingdom right. at Medieval Times. That's right. <laughs> that's, and so how did you come into this role? What, what, what were you doing that led you to it? Well, like everyone else at Medieval Times, I'm from the show. Okay. Like I did the show for close to 20 years. Oh, well, my were you a knight or? Master Ceremonies, uh, one of the actors in the show. The okay. Vocals. Yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, my background, probably some writing, primarily radio. Okay. And, uh, and then starting in around 2000, I became the creative director for the company. And so if you take those two exposures I'd had in those other fields and add the close to 20 years experience in the medieval times culture, 
I think you put all three of those together and you end up with creative director. So you were an actor on the show and then you, did you hop directly to becoming the kind of the, the brain behind it? Uh, no, not directly. Probably over the course of, uh, you know, three or four years. Uh, I was up in Toronto at that castle and opened it up and we were doing a lot of things outside of the building, which required a lot of creativity to use our, our product in new and different ways, you know, because we were dark so many days. And uh, so I got a, a chance to diddle around and experiment with some of the elements with some pretty marked successes, and I think the company noticed that. So when we were looking to do a new show in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, we all got together and uh, pitched ideas about the new show. I think mine kind of got adopted, but then we tried actually building the show. When I say we, I mean the, the show directors from around the company at that time. I think there were six of us then. But as you may know, writing by committee doesn't work. And yeah. so eventually they said, Lee, just go off, go home by yourself. Here's the idea. Here's the outline and see what you can do with it. And from then on, that's pretty much been my job. Do you remember what that first pitch was that you you suggested? Uh, yeah, well, I think it's the it's I think it basically ended up being the show we did where we had a seventh character who worked for the monarch. He was his marshal of the tournament, uh, long serving captain or general of the armies who at, near the end of the show betrays the king, turns traitor, and challenges the champion who's just been crowned. It was a, it was a pretty good kind of a twist and turn at the end of the show. Interesting. And so, is this something that you'd been thinking about? Like, were as an actor, were you kind of sitting around, like coming up with plot ideas, or you know, in your downtime, thinking, "Oh, this is how I would I would run the show if I were doing it." Well, I think everybody in the show thinks that. Uh, <laughs> no, I think well, everybody's got ideas, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of them are good, and you know, and I'm I'm not so closed minded. I don't adopt things even now. Uh -huh. uh, when we just launched this new show, I saw some of the actors making choices, and I said, okay, on my next visit to the next place, I'd say, look, I saw someone making this choice. This is pretty good. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. How does your day typically start? My typical day starts with a review of what comes in for the show. I don't have a job like other people. I've, I've usually got several projects running off to the side and, and you know, the idea of at some point today is to check on those or do whatever's required on that list mm -hmm. and then see what comes in during the course of the day. And, and it can be a weird hodgepodge of stuff, you know, watching a, a watching an audition on tape or answering an email about the sizes of the, the tunnel curtains or uh, a new fog system that's going into Scott. So sometimes at the end of the day, you, you sit down and you realize, wow, I did, I, I ran the gamut today. 
I yeah. touched on almost every part of the show at some point today with someone, you know? Yeah. So you're getting a lot of updates on like technical stuff that's going on on the ground in all these places, and you have to help them troubleshoot, among other things. Yeah. Well, I have a team of techs uh, that I use that are, are really immersed in this stuff, people that work for us. And, and when, it, when it gets too technical, I, I go to them and get them involved in the conversation. But yeah, there's a... There's just so many aspects of the show that people have questions on or things that need to be updated. And I like to be accessible, too. You know, I want them to feel like if, if I'm the director and I'm the creative director, that if they reach out to me with a question, they can get an answer right away. Could you tell me a little bit about how the creative department is structured at Medieval Times? Because it sounds like there's you and then there are these directors around the country who are also responsible for executing the vision. So I, I just want to get this straight in my head. How does all that fit together exactly? Well, our president's very active in the in the creation and ideas for the show. So okay. uh, so he's a he's a big part of the team. Then there's myself, who's in charge of you know the dialogue, and uh, I shepherd the music project. And then our head knight, Tim Baker, uh, does the choreography for the sword fights. Mm-hmm. And we all, Tim and I, also worked on the the uh, horse choreography for this show. So between the three of us, we kind of set a general direction, an outline, if you will, of let's say at least uh, one. A chain of events, and then I go and write a draft, and then we look the draft over, and, you know. And uh, by then, we're already working on the choreography for the uh, for the fights, the choreography for the horse acts, and the dialogue. Once I have a fully working script, I take it to our composer Daniel May. Yeah, and he starts on the score. Then when we have when we have all those elements put together, we we meet generally in D- the Dallas facility with our. Uh, I will say mocked up dummy script and music and spend a couple of weeks fine tuning it to end up with the show that will then take and uh, seed throughout the company. That's a two year process. That's a two year process. And so you start off, it's you, the president of the company who sort of also moonlights as a creative and the director of choreography and you work together and then you create the script and then you kind of refine that with the help of other people. And so where do then the direct other directors come into play? Well, the, the guys at the local level are responsible, first of all, for performing this, the show as scripted every night. But then they have the enormous responsibility of finding and then hiring and training the talent that, that keeps the show going. Yeah. So they're casting guys. Yeah, they really are. Because what, what happens eventually along the interview and audition process is they send to me the candidates on tape for approval. Okay. Well, not on tape anymore, obviously. But no, their role is vital because I can't be everywhere looking at shows all the time. So they're left to kind of, uh, you know, steer the boat. So the process starts with, with you know, a seed of an idea and then you start writing dialogue in a script. How do you actually come up with ideas for a Medieval Times plot? Well, the idea I walked away with for the new show once we settled in, uh, I made a couple of stabs at some other things that weren't working out. And the president and uh, I were in a in an office, I think we were in Chicago. And he said, what about a queen? And I said, you know what, uh, we can do that. So if you're asking what I walked away with to write a script, it was that. Okay, uh, we're going to have we're going to have a queen instead of a king and everything flowed out of there. And surprisingly, after the first couple of weeks, the character started writing herself. Are there like plays that you're a fan of? Is there like any kind? Are there movies that you you think of for inspiration? Like, 
What, what do you look to for ideas when you're generating a script? Uh, language is really important to me. So I, I have lists of words that I keep laying around that, I, that I've either used in the show, that I love using in the show, or that I want to use in the show. As uh, When I was younger, I loved all the, the Tolkien stuff, and uh, you know, especially the Silmarillion, which I find is a, a really great inspirational kind of epic source for things. What, uh, what's uh, that? I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. It's actually probably Tolkien's first book, but wasn't published until uh, either late in his life or after his death. It was finished by one of his sons, and it's about the creation of Middle-earth and the tales of uh, characters that are told long before the tale of The Hobbit and everything like that, like millennia before. Interesting. And it's it's almost a series of short stories by Tolkien, but yep. they're all connected. Uh, but it just has the kind of epic language that I like, and it's not so complicated and an audience can't follow along with it. Okay. Uh, so you're kind of a fantasy guy, though, generally? No. No, no, no just but you're, <laughs> Tolkien, you're, but you're a Tolkien guy. No, but that's kind of where the language comes from, I think, for me. I mean, I never, you know, I never did Shakespeare or anything like that. But, I, you know, I'm a fan of the I'm a fan of the plots of Shakespeare. But the audience can't follow along. The audience has a lot of challenges as far as dialogue goes anyway. So it can't be too flowery. But I think in the setting, it's very appropriate that it is a little flowery. What are those challenges? What do you mean? Well, I mean, I know you've been to the show, so yeah. yeah, you know, there's, there's, first of all, there's a lot of ambient noise around you. We have a very clever score, so we're not usually competing with the music. But you know, there's, they're being served food the whole time. They're being shown photographs. They're being, there's, there's retailing going on. If the dialogue is very difficult to follow, mm-hmm. then those things only, only make it worse and impedes the audience being able to follow along with the plot. So while I think the language should reflect a little bit about the time, it can't be so archaic that they're not able to follow along when they're occasionally distracted. So you've adopted this sort of Tolkien-esque language as as your inspiration or, or, or guidelines or, or rule of thumb? Yeah, maybe. I think it's probably reminiscent of it, yeah. Do you have any sort of writing guidelines for how to keep it simple but, you know, time-appropriate sounding, like, so you don't lose people? Yeah, edit, edit, edit. <laughs> okay. No, really. It's, it, you know, uh, even even when we're doing the run-up process for a few weeks with the new product and, you know, I see the actors are struggling with a particular phrase or uh, or something just seems a little bit too complicated. I just do rewrites every night and, you know, it's mostly cutting because mm-hmm. you show up with more than what you need and walk away with just those things that are working. So I'll write a 65-page script that ends up being a 46-page script performed. So they're that long. I mean, that's pretty long for a script. That's not. That's that's a a, a mid sized play. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of you know. There's a lot of stage directions and stuff in there too. You know. There's a lot of complicated blocking, and I don't. I don't even get into the complicated part part of the blocking. But when you look at our script, the the liner notes for blocking, you know, take up. They take up lines on the page. And when you say blocking, you're talking about just the things the actors are doing on horses, not like the duels, or uh, no, no, we don't. I don't get into the choreography. That's even a, that's a separate document. But uh, no, but you know, uh, pause for music cue, uh, move horse to center, things like that. Things like uh, that. I know, say they take, but uh, um, we rely on. I would say most of the blocking for the actors is uh, that's again the guy that's local. When he brings somebody into the program, he shows them the block and he goes with the, each of the scenes of dialogue. What is sort of the, the soul of a medieval type script? What is like the the core of it? What what does it have to do? It has to entertain, of course. It it has to 
focus usually on a monarch. Uh, you know, it's a tournament and it's celebrating a monarch or a monarch is celebrating with a tournament. So they become the focal point of the evening. Uh, for years, it was a well, a count, then a king, and now a queen. Uh, the other one is it has to embrace uh, our culture of the horse. Okay. You know, it has to showcase the horse. It has to communicate to the audience our love and respect for the horse. And then it has to pay an homage to, uh, you know, to the, the tales of uh, the medieval knight. Yeah. You know, which are basically tales. You know, they're just stories. That's not actually life for a medieval knight. So it has to be a tournament. It has to, with a monarch overseeing it. So a king or now a queen. You have to have room for, you know, a horse show and you have to have room for dueling and jousting eventually. And th those are the, are there any other kind of required beats that you have to hit? Oh, yeah. The whole time you're riding a medieval time show, you need to keep the operation of the building uh, kind of on a side sheet and keep watching it. Because... The, the other thing you want the show to do is dovetail well into the not only the nomenclature of the building, but into the operation that's happening simultaneously. In other words, the audience is seated. The show begins. I did a couple of shows where the first scene set up the entire plot for the following the show that followed. The pitfall there was anyone who was sat late didn't know what was going on all night because they missed <laughs> that first scene. So, you know, I've, I, I remedied that in the last few shows. But then, you know, the food servers are, you know, they're busy doing things. You don't want to you don't want to compete with the food service. So they they can serve some of the food during the parade, the eight man drill, which is one of those areas of the show with no dialogue where if you look up, you see the pretty horses. But if you look down, you can eat your food. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And then the servers have to be certain places. They're also in the procession. So you can't put the procession where the servers can't attend it. And you also don't want the clients left without this piece of food or that piece of food. So you have to keep the operation of the building off to one side. And you can't do anything in the show that requires more horse or costume changes than, than they can accomplish backstage in the amount of time you've got dialogue on the stage to cover it. So when you're putting the show together, you're thinking, what am I going to do to entertain the audience? And I've got to mold that so that the operation that's taking place backstage and in the arena dovetails in with the show. So, it gets pretty complicated. I was going to say, part of writing a, a dinner theater is, is choreographing the dinner as well as the theater. It sounds that's like that's correct. <laughs> you have to get yep. both of those right. Do you, they do have you, to go together, you know, and, and yeah. uh, those, those servers, they, they work really hard, and, and we want to make sure the show's complementing what they're doing. Do you kind of know it's all going to work before you try like a dress rehearsal? Oh yeah, that's what we that's what we use those uh, couple weeks of rehearsal in Dallas for. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. uh, we do it now in Dallas. We did it for many years in L.A. But every day, yeah, you run into a piece of the show and you say, "Oh, that's not going to work. We're not going to be able to do that." Or the guys backstage, are you? The music starts again. They're, are you kidding me? We're half dressed. There's no way we're going to make that curtain call. So yeah, you you mis massage and move things around. By the time we get to a dress rehearsal at the end of the week or the end of the second week. Uh, we know it's going to work, and now it's just a matter of getting the the sound booth to get the the light cues dialed in, the uh, the music cues at the appropriate time, getting the the cast to polish up with the dialogue, and then uh, all Tim and his knights to uh, start nailing the choreography. But by the time we do the dress rehearsal, we like the product. Now it's just a, a matter of uh, rehearse, rehearse, rehearse.
the show where uh, everything was contained in, in the first scene, and so no one knew what was going on. How long did that run for before you were able to fix it? Well, I never fixed it. <laughs> oh, people are supposed to show up on time. No, uh, it's a learning process. Yeah. You know, it's, it, those were great shows. Actually, those were two of everybody that works at the castle. They were their favorite opening scenes. One was a f- uh, fire lit scene yeah. uh, with the whole company at the center of the arena, and the other one was an ambush and a um, capture uh, with combat and stuff. But it didn't ruin the experience for anybody. But what of those things are is you recognize them, you go, okay, I won't do that again. I won't do that again. I won't do that again. And, yeah. and now that I've been writing the shows for, you know, 18 or 19 years, it's allowed me the ability to, to just weedle out all the things that weren't working, you know? So how long does it take for you to actually write a show? Just like to script it? Six months. It's six months. And then, yeah, I would say six months till you have it completely dialed in and I'm ready to sit down with our composer and start talking about music cues. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. And by the end of that six-month period, you basically got the blocking and the dialogue, right? That's sort of what's in there. Yep, the blocking and, and, and more dialogue than I need. And more dialogue than you need. <laughs> so then you go to work with the composer. And so what, what are you guys working or, or, together on with that score? Why do, you, why do you have to work directly with them? Well, Daniel uh, Daniel May, our composer, we've done four scores together. Uh, he, he's very motivic. You know, he likes a theme that runs through the show. So he picks one uh, the, the, for every show. And the, this is no different. The Queen has this uh, um, theme. I think the cello is kind of her voice for the show. But as we've worked together more and more, and I realize this is just like scoring a movie at this point, because we're going to do the same thing every time at the same place every night. So I've gotten very specific with cues. I say, Daniel, I need a 16-second cue here that comes in hot, but it quiets after about three seconds. And then I just wanted to have a long tail of about 12 or 14 seconds and just let it die out under the dialogue. And then, and then what I do is go back and get the actors to listen to the cue, tell them, look, it's going to come in hot 
to express what you're doing in the show. Then it's going to quiet after three seconds. Then you begin the dialogue. It'll be underneath you to support you throughout the rest of the line, but it won't interfere with the audibility. Now, and then we go through the whole show like that with cues. We've got over 120 cues in the show. Oh, wow. So it, it sounds like you're almost writing the rhythm of the music in your head or, or sort of the emotional effect. You, you have a very specific idea of what you want the music to do emotionally when you go to, to the composer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially for those cues that are, that are in and around the dialogue. Because to me, the dialogue is pointing you in a certain direction. And, and all you need to push the audience over the edge is just to give it a, a musical signature that goes along with the sentiment in the line. They do it in movies all the time, and you don't know they're doing it to you. We try and do the same thing in the arena. If the mo- if the moment's poignant and you're focused on that horse running around and I play a piece of poignant music, you may not notice the music, yeah. but it enhances the quality of the scene. Is that something you've kind of learned over time, or was it something you sort of started doing and you, you paid that much attention to the music uh, immediately? No, I, I learned it over time. I actually started learning it working with Daniel. He brought that the musical integrity and the musical intelligence to the show. And then as I would watch it over the next three or four years, I'd say, oh, you know, we could have done something right there. We could have done something. So, so with each production, I come back with a more and more specific list of requests that I want, things I want to do musical. And, and now sometimes not even music. Sometimes it'll just be a voice. Or we'll, I'll come to the studio here in Toronto and we'll do just vocal enhancements, whispers and things like that in the show that you're not even aware of when you're an audience member. But I did hear when you interviewed the queen from uh, New Jersey, Tara, she said one of her favorite moments of the show was that opening that's uh, it's the monks with the voices whispering her name and things like those were all post-production things I did here at the studio in Toronto. Yeah. So you're really into sound design. You've kind of become a geek about this, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I just realized that it's the it's the 10th player on the field, you know? Yeah. So you write too much dialogue. You then do, you whittle that down a bit. Then you do the score and then you bring that to Dallas. And so then you, you start, you're basically demoing it. You're rehearsing it. You're, saying, you're actually putting the show together there. Right. We're seeing what works and what doesn't. And then I think within the first three or four days of rehearsal, we have that. And then uh, and then we spend the next you know week or so rehearsing what we hope is the finished product. Uh, obviously, it's very difficult for uh, Tim and the Knights because they've had this muscle memory, this choreography for four or five years yeah. of how to do a fight. He comes in with a fight that's similar but different. And so they have to learn to do the fight they've always done, but there's some subtle changes in it. And you have to do it a lot of times before that old muscle memory goes away and the new muscle memory takes over. It's particularly bad, I'll tell you, in California and Florida, that uh, two places that never close, 365 days a year. So all day we're rehearsing the new choreography and lines. And at night they have to go back and perform the old show and they have to do that until we have the new show installed. It's really, really difficult. And, and do you work on the choreography at all? Or is that just totally Tim's kind of territory? Uh, Tim works on the fight choreography. Now, yeah. he and I will agree on where certain people are going or should be standing or where something should happen in the arena, like the physical blocking of the choreography. Sometimes dialogue or music will dictate something specific has to be done. But when it comes to the jousting, the falls and the and the fighting, that's completely Tim's territory. 
Why Dallas? Is is that like the special forces of medieval times? Is that like <laughs> the Marine Corps there? No, what is what is why Dallas? Uh, Dallas is the cor- corporate headquarters. Okay. So uh, and it used to be Los Angeles. So okay. uh, we 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 want to give the people at the corporate office. Uh, you know, so many people are involved in a show at medieval times. You know, the director of the food and beverage, uh, the people that uh, you know, uh, horse stuff, uh, uh, marketing, everything like that. We want to be available to the people in the corporate office to come down and see what it is we're working on. Can they get any you know pictures of the new production being put together? The people with the that are in charge of the uh, food service have to come down and see the flow of the show, make notes on when they can do this thing. They may even come to me and say, Lee, you know, the procession, the servers, it's happening too early. It needs to move back at least a minute and a half. So it's important that we're there rehearsing for them to to look in on and see if the part of the company they're responsible for is working well with the new production. And then how long is that process? How long does it take to actually put the show together then once you've brought it down there? We're probably doing the first premiere within uh, 10 to 12 days. Oh, wow. So that, that's pretty brief. Like once you've got it to that point, you, you can work out all the kinks and, and get it up and ready for prime time. Well, that's where we've got boots on the ground. Uh, before that, uh, Tim has gone out and in and teach the choreography months before that. Oh, okay. Uh, so they could be working on it. Same thing with the horse trainers. The horse acts and maneuvers mm-hmm. have all been sent out on video or we've shown up personally to show them what it is. So they've got months to acclimate the horses to the new movements. And the same thing with the script and a lot of the music cues. I've sent those out to the actors 30, 60, 90 days before we arrive. So when we show up on the scene, the idea is like with every actor in every play is know your lines and we'll show you the rest. I see. I see. So I guess I'm curious how long it takes in total to kind of the, the, to put together a show from the moment it's it's germinating in your head and the president's head to uh, to when you're it's actually the you know well there's no curtain but uh, when the horse is first well, there is a curtain. The stage. Yeah. yeah I guess yeah. So how does no, but, I, how long does that take? Eighteen to twenty-four months, I would say. How many different shows are operating at a time? You have one show going for all the castles, right? We have one version of the night show. We also do a great deal of educational business uh, matinees uh, for schools. So we have a second presentation for that, which is uh, thirty minutes of four vignettes that teach an anti-bullying message that we call uh, chivalry in action. Those are complete four complete almost mini shows that teach the students a lesson yeah. followed by a, a truncated version of the nighttime tournament. So that's an entire second show that we do. So wait, what's the anti-bullying plot? Uh, I just chose uh, uh, four anti-bullying messages and I built four vignettes around them using the people in our show to teach the students the uh, the lesson. Okay. I use the knights, the queen, uh, serving girl, uh, the squires bullying uh, uh, another squire who's different, and uh, it 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 conveys the anti bullying message, and it gives each of the kids, uh, all the kids after each of the vignette get a chance to uh, shout out their choice on a multiple uh, multiple choice. It's it's pretty interactive, engaging. I know the educators love it because they're on the front lines for some of this. You know the results of the bullying and the disrespect. So, is it like a, a knight's like bullying his squire or something, or or bullying another knight? Like, what's the how, how, <laughs> what's the vignette? Well, in one scene, they come across a beggar on the on the road uh, who's uh, he's pulling a cart and he's you know he's begging for money and uh, and the squire who's attending the knight dismisses him, tells calls him lazy, tells him to go, you know, 
could get a job basically. And then the night teach them, look, you, the, you know, everybody falls on hard times. You shouldn't do, you know, that's not the way to speak to them. The night offers him money and a place to stay for the night. And, you know, on the way out of the scene, the, uh, the squire eventually helps the beggar with the cart and pulls it out of the arena and the kids all burst into applause. And so each of the four vignettes teaches a lesson like that. All the five squires bullying the one squire who's unlike them, you know, and then the, the master of ceremony comes out and teaches the squires, look, everyone's different. You can't, you can't treat him that way because we're, he's different. We're all different, you know. Yeah. So each of the four vignettes teaches that kind of lesson. I see. So it's, yeah, it's using its story to teach people to be a mensch. Um, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the that word doesn't come up, but yeah, <laughs> I guess there. I don't know how many people were speaking Yiddish in in uh, like twelfth century Valencia or whatever. But anyway, are are you always working on a new show? Is like how long did one of these shows lasts for? What four years? You said four years. I think is probably an average. Uh, I'm always working on something, you know, on the creative end. Right now, our focus is obviously Arizona, 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 where we're going to build an entire new facility, okay. new cast with the new show, you know, and everything that goes with it. It's an, it's an enormous undertaking. So um, now that we've got all the shows installed and I've, had a, I've even had a chance to review most of them once, almost twice now, our focus will be moving to uh, getting a show put together in Scottsdale. Okay, so you so right now you're you're putting together a new show for there, but I guess you said there's always something. Is it is it like a a new entirely new program, or is it is it the bowling like what uh, what other stuff are you working on? Well, it's my responsibility to review all the shows. Okay, so uh, like I just flew up here to Toronto today. Next week I'll be in L.A. Blah blah blah. So the only way to really review the show and give notes to them and uh, and you know to help them implement the changes and then to follow up and see if the changes have been made is to is to sit at the show. Okay, sit through the shows, go backstage, see how things are working. So that's a big part of my time when I'm not working on a new show is basically just traveling from one facility to another. And reviewing the show, and the casts are really good about implementing the notes. So then we come back, you know, you just over the years that the show's running, you continue to polish the product. And so, how often are you traveling? Uh, more than every other week. Oh wow! So yeah, yeah so pretty frequently. Well, I'm gone. I'm probably gone away from home a little more than I'm at home. Oh, you're really on the road a lot. Yeah, and you know, and then uh, other things come up that, that you know that force the additional travel, like the. The Phoenix product right now is is a you know that's a tenth location now that's you have to put that on your radar instead of going to nine cities now you have to go to ten. Do you like all the traveling? Uh, it is what it is. Uh, yeah. The philosophy now is the job is travel and travel is the job. So the two <laughs> things go hand in hand. I like working with the I like working with the kids out at the at the locations. Yeah, yeah. but the travel these days is. Not always a pleasure. Your kind of work with them is going just you're cycling between the, the nine different sites and then you're every other week you're getting home. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and how long? <laughs> and so when you're in, so when you're out of sight, how many days are you there for? Three, four, five, depends on the time of year. Some places when it's really busy, you can see a lot of shows in three days. Yeah. So uh, other places, you know, when it's real slow in the off season, I show up on a Friday, I watch Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and their week is over. So I, so I go home. So uh, it's cyclical. It's just, uh, and then there's other times where they're so busy 
Yeah. They, they don't want you to show up. <laughs> Why is that? Well, they, they're because they're consumed with shows and there's not going to be any time to stand around and work on anything, you know. Yeah. Uh, the idea is to let them come in, let them do the shows and go home. I can come back when it's not so busy and we can talk about things. So you, you go to New Jersey or Chicago and you, you stay there for three days a week and you're just watching shows. Are you giving them comments after every performance or are you kind of saving it all up until the end? What how, what are you doing there exactly? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't like to swoop down on people after a show, but there's definitely things that if I'm there over the course of three or four days, there's some just nuanced things, small things that I think uh, we can try and implement while I'm there. Yeah. You know, uh, we don't need to have grand rehearsals for them. I say, you know, stand over here. You could do that or wait for that music cue before you do that and try and implement them while I'm there. And the reason I do that is because I, I want them to be there if they have any questions, you know, and we could do feedback. But after I leave, I send a document of detailed notes for the, for the uh, cast manager to go over with the cast. And then it's his responsibility to make sure that it carries throughout the cast. Because in California, for instance, if we have seven queens, I might only only see two or three yeah uh, during my visit but the information needs to trickle down to the other the other queens as well so that's the guy on the ground that's his job is to to make sure that knowledge gets passed throughout the show to the knights to the to the the what what you call the the evil guy the other day the heel knight or whatever yeah the heel the, <laughs> yeah all those notes have to be disseminated to all the people that play in that role yeah. And you're visiting these places more than once a year, it sounds like. You're doing the circuit. How, I mean, how many times are you visiting a castle in the course of a year? Uh, ideally, it'd be three. Wow. So it's, and this is just quality control? Yeah, basically. Quality control plus keeping your finger on the, uh, uh, on the pulse. You know, you can learn a lot about a show and a yeah. lot about the way that the culture is working, the people are working together just by standing backstage one show, watching the costume changes, watching how people work together to get the horses ready. You know, uh, there's a lot going on out in the arena, but there's a lot going on backstage. You can learn a lot about how the facility runs by standing back there and watching parts of the show. Oh, that's interesting. So you're learning about the mechanics of it just by watching it at so many places too. You're say, like that because when you're when you're writing it, you have to think about the building and actually all the scene changes and stuff. And this is your chance to actually see it in action. That's right. And then during the course of the sh- uh, the run of the show, it's it's important to go backstage, you know, and 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 have the cast see me. You know, talk to me, you know, joke around. Uh, If they're having issues, especially, you know, it's especially helpful. They say, Lee, come over here, look at this. They're having a problem with a particular piece of the armor. They're having a problem with the sewing that's come out of the costume shop for a particular horse's costume. Then, then I can transmit that directly to to our costume shop or directly to the people that are doing the armor at the at the uh, sword shop. So it also gives them a chance to get access, you know, directly to vendors if we're having problems. Because if if we weren't having those conversations, I would never know there was an issue with that with that item. Do you guys have an in-house sword shop, or is you're you're outsourcing that to a company? Um, it's an outsourced company down in Florida, but I think you know we. We use so much stuff, and it's so complicated, and and uh, that I think he kind of exclusively works for us. So he's sort of an adjunct to he's a yeah. medieval times adjunct. Yeah, it's it's those helmets, you know, those helmets. You look at them; they're real pretty. Those are handmade. That starts as a flat piece of aluminum, and it has to be molded by on a, on a mold with a hammer. 
Yeah. You know, each one of those pieces cut out and molded. And then you look at those six helmets, you figure, well, he had to do that nine times. Now he's got another another set for Scottsdale. And then they have to be repaired throughout the run of the show. And, it's, and the armors and the shoulders. And then you've got the probably thousands of swords that have to be made. So, yeah, yeah it's a it's a huge undertaking. I don't think he has time to work for anyone else. So you guys have an armory, basically. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I believe it's called Medieval Armory. Medieval Armory. You you have a forge. That's I, I kind of that I'd love to take a tour of that place. So, when you're giving like notes to the actors, I mean like how granular does this stuff get? I mean like what what kind of I I guess what is your typical note exactly? It, we get way down in the guts of it, and I think the people that do the show love doing that too. Yeah. I mean, you know, they they love getting it absolutely perfect. So um, a typical note, uh, it's kind of chronic with the show is, uh, so the queen stands up at one point. She says, very well. And a music cue starts. And I want to hear five or six seconds of the music cue before she speaks, which requires her to say, very well. Take two counts standing up two or three counts as she moves to the front of the stage, and then around the fifth or sixth count to begin her line. That is the actor working perfectly with the cue that was designed to go with the dialogue. If she stands up and starts talking right away, that's that's not the way the cue was designed or the line. So, yeah, we get right down into it like that. And I think the actors love it because they love getting it. They love nailing it. I mean, the specificity there, it, that's kind of it's amazing. I guess the audience doesn't necessarily think about it, but it, it probably helps the final product a lot because it's all, it makes everything work smoothly. Well, yeah, they don't realize it, but it's moving them. It's moving them in certain directions the way a film score would or anything. But listen, it's not unusual in the theater. I mean, it's, you know, when, when a musical theater, when they rehearse, that he might, the director might be looking at, uh, 24 dancers and he'll say that you know the third person from the right had their foot off in that scene you know they were a little bit i mean this is way long-running shows are done it's never perfect so we'll but we'll continue to try and make it perfect so you were an actor in the show before you started directing and that's right and did you also do you know musical theater did you do uh, like you know other other kinds of other kinds of performance no, no, I, I I hung around the fringes of it a little bit, but no, that it, it wasn't my thing. Uh, I think the only experience I had that would that would lend itself to this job is probably the radio. What kind of radio stuff did you do? Uh, rock and pop. Were you a DJ or? Yeah. Oh, okay. Back, back in the old days when they had like DJs. Yeah, you got the voice for it much more than I do. <laughs> I I have a classic podcaster voice, which is to say, is totally like adenoidal and awful for for actually being on air. You've got like a real radio voice. So you so your entire theater experience has been within medieval times. Do you ever go and like, kind of talk to directors from outside of it, or, or or watch them do rehearsals and things to kind of learn? No, I haven't. I haven't had an opportunity to do that. I've been exposed to a lot of people in the business, though. You know, and, and yeah. in peripheral businesses, certainly in in sound, sound recording, music, uh, light costuming and you know i like being an audience member i'm mm -hmm. going this weekend to a show and i don't really need anybody to walk me through it i understand all the elements that are being poured into it so i not only can i appreciate it i can also steal stuff if i see things i like <laughs> what, what's something you've stolen i can i don't know anything specific but someone will do something on a stage or they'll do something with lighting or something like that i say oh that was cool yeah. Oh, yeah. Catalog that idea. That was pretty cool. Yeah. You know? So 
when people go to medieval times, you know, whether it's a kid or it's, you know, someone at a bachelor party, I think they are typically going for the dueling or the jousting, right? That's and maybe the horses. That's sort of the the first thing that that that's that's really the main attraction. Do you kind of worry about the plot not getting much attention? Do you worry about being sort of secondary? Uh, well, maybe you know, and maybe it's appropriate that it is. You know, it's not. Uh, it's not a drama. You know, it does its very best to complement the horses and the jousting and the sword fighting. But I see comments every day from all nine facilities. I get them on my phone. It's the first thing I do every day. And I would say one of the most common ones is we went there expecting to see, you know, the jousting and the horses. We didn't realize how cool this was going to be. I don't think people are ready for the entire immersive experience. Certainly, commercial, uh, you know, print ads don't do the show justice. You really have to see it live to understand what it is. And I, and I like to think that the plot and the music and stuff is, is the additional thing they didn't expect. And when they come in and they say, well, you know, hey, this is a professional theater, only it has horses and fighting in it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you're there to surprise them. Well, I hope we surprise them. I think we are surprising them. I don't think 75 or 80 million people can be wrong. All right, Lee, this has been a lot of fun chatting. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. That's it for this episode of Working. And that's it for this series of episodes about medieval times. I really hope you had fun getting inside that world. I know I did. And if you did like it, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. And if you have questions or comments, please send me an email at working at slate.com. Again, that is working at slate.com. To be entirely honest, I have been a tiny bit derelict lately in responding to some of those emails. And if you're one of the people I haven't gotten back to yet, I'm sorry. Deeply, deeply regretful. Anyway, as always, Working is produced by Jessamine Molly. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. While this may be the end of the Medieval Times season, though, we will be back here next week with more Working. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.